Preface to The Red Thumb Mark This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Red Thumb Mark by R. Austin Freeman Preface In writing the following story, the author has had in view no purpose other than that of affording entertainment to such readers as are interested in problems of crime and their solutions, and the story itself differs in no respect from others of its class, excepting in that an effort has been made to keep within the probabilities of ordinary life, both in the characters and in the incidents. Nevertheless, it may happen that the book may serve a useful purpose in drawing attention to certain popular misapprehensions on the subject of fingerprints and their evidential value. Misapprehensions to the extent of which may be judged when we learn from the newspapers that several continental commercial houses have actually substituted fingerprints for signed initials. The facts and figures contained in Mr. Singleton's evidence, including the very liberal estimate of the population of the globe, are, of course, taken from Mr. Galton's great and important work on fingerprints, to which the reader who is interested in the subject is referred for much curious and valuable information. In conclusion, the author desires to express his thanks to his friend Mr. Bernard E. Bishop for the assistance rendered to him in certain photographic experiments, and to those officers of the Central Criminal Court who very kindly furnished him with details of the procedure in criminal trials. End of preface. The Red Thumb Mark by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter 1. My Learned Brother. Confurgatum anno, sixteen seventy seven. Fabricatum anno, sixteen ninety eight. Ricardo Powell, armiger thesaur. The words, set in four panels, which formed a frieze beneath the pediment of a fine brick portico, summarize the history of one of the tall houses at the upper end of King's Bench Walk, and as I, somewhat absently, read over the inscription, my attention was divided between admiration of the exquisitely finished carved brickwork and the quiet dignity of the building, and an effort to reconstitute the dead and gone Richard Powell in the stirring times in which he played his part. I was about to turn away when the empty frame of the portico became occupied by a figure, and one so appropriate, in its wig and obsolete habiliments, to the old world surroundings that it seemed to complete the picture, and I lingered idly to look at it. The barrister had halted in the doorway to turn over a sheaf of papers that he held in his hand, and, as he replaced the red tape which bound them together, I looked up and our eyes met. For a moment we regarded one another with the incurious gaze the casual strangers bestow on one another. Then there was a flash of mutual recognition. The impassive and rather severe face of the lawyer softened into a genial smile, and the figure, detaching itself from its frame, came down the steps with a hand extended in cordial greeting. "'My dear Jervis,' he exclaimed, as we clasped hands warmly, this is a great and delightful surprise. How often have I thought of my old comrade and wondered if I should ever see him again, and lo, here he is, thrown up on the sounding beach of the inner temple, like the proverbial bread cast upon the waters. Your surprise, Thorndyke, is nothing to mine, I replied. Your bread has at least returned as bread, whereas I am in the position of a man who, having cast his bread upon the waters, sees it return in the form of a buttered muffin or a bath bun. I left a respectable medical practitioner, and I find him transformed into a bewigged and begowned limb of the law. Thorndyke laughed at the comparison. I can not your old friend into a bath, then, said he. Rather, that you left him a chrysalis and came back to find him a butterfly. But the change is not so great as you think. 
Hippocrates is only hiding under the gown of Solon, as you will understand when I explain my metamorphosis, and that I will do this very evening, if you have no engagement. I am one of the unemployed at present, I said, and quite at your service. Then come round to my chambers at seven, said Thorndyke, and we will have a chop and a pint of claret together and exchange autobiographies. I am due in court in a few minutes. Do you reside within that noble old portico? I asked. No, replied Thorndyke. I often wish I did. It would add several inches to one's statue to feel that the mouth of one's borough was graced with a Latin inscription for admiring strangers to ponder over. No, my chambers are some doors further down. Number 6A. He turned to point out the house as we crossed towards Crown Office Row. At the top of Middle Temple Lane we parted, Thorndyke taking his way with fluttering gown towards the law courts, while I directed my steps westward towards Adam Street, the chosen haunt of the medical agent. The soft-voiced bell of the temple clock was telling out the hour of seven in muffled accents, as though it apologized for breaking the studious silence, as I emerged from the archway of Mitre Court and returned into King's Bench Walk. Paved footway was empty save for a single figure, pacing slowly before the doorway of number 6A, in which, though the wig had now given place to a felt hat and the gown to a jacket, I had no difficulty in recognizing my old friend. Punctual to the moment, as of old, said he, meeting me halfway. What a blessed virtue is punctuality, even in small things. I have just been taking the air in Fountain Court, and will now introduce you to my chambers. Here is my humble retreat. We passed in through the common entrance and ascended stone stairs to find the first floor, where we were confronted by a massive door, above which my friend's name was written in white letters. Rather a forbidding exterior, remarked Thorndyke, as he inserted the latch key, but it is homely enough inside. The heavy door swung outwards and disclosed a beige-covered inner door, which Thorndyke pushed open and held for me to pass in. "'You will find my chambers an odd mixture,' said Thorndyke, "'for they combine the attractions of an office, a museum, a laboratory, and a workshop.' "'And a restaurant,' added the small elderly man, who was decanting a bottle of claret by means of a glass siphon. "'You forget that, sir.' "'Yes, I forgot that, Polton,' said Thorndyke. "'But I see you have not.' He glanced toward a small table that had been placed near the fire and set out with the requisites for our meal. "'Tell me,' said Thorndyke as we made the initial onslaught on the products of Polton's culinary experiments. What has been happening to you since you left the hospital six years ago? My story is soon told, I answered, somewhat bitterly. It is not an uncommon one. My funds ran out, as you know, rather unexpectedly. When I had paid my examination and registration fees, the coffer was absolutely empty, and though, no doubt, a medical diploma contains, to use Johnson's phrase, the potentiality of wealth beyond the dreams of avarice, there is a vast difference in practice between the potential and the actual. I have, in fact, been earning a subsistence, sometimes as an assistant, sometimes as a locum tenens. Just now I've got no work to do, and so I have entered my name on Tercival's list of eligibles. Thorndyke pursed his lips and frowned. It's a wicked shame, Jervis, said he presently, that a man of your abilities and scientific acquirements should be frittering away his time on odd jobs like some half-qualified wastrel. It is, I agreed. My merits are grossly undervalued by a stiff-necked and obtuse generation. But what would you have, my learned brother, if poverty steps behind you and claps the occulting bushel over your thirty-thousand-candle-power luminary? Your brilliance is apt to be obscured. Yes, I suppose that is so, grunted Thorndyke, and he remained for a time in deep thought. And now, said I, 
let us have your promised explanation i am positively frizzling with curiosity to know what chain of circumstances has converted john evelyn thorndyke from a medical practitioner into a luminary of the law thorndyke smiled indulgently the fact is he said that no such transformation has occurred john evelyn thorndyke is still a medical practitioner what in a wig and gown i exclaimed yes a mere sheep in wolf's clothing he replied i will tell you how it has come about after you left the hospital six years ago i stayed on taking up any small appointments that were going assistant demonstrator or curatorship and such like hung about the chemical and physical laboratories the museum and post-mortem room and meanwhile took my m d and d s then i got called to the bar in hope of getting a coronership but soon after this old stedman retired unexpectedly you remember stedman the lecturer on medical jurisprudence and i put in for the vacant post rather to my surprise i was appointed lecturer whereupon i dismissed the coronership from my mind took my present chambers and sat down to wait for anything that might come and what has come i asked why a very curious assortment of miscellaneous practice he replied at first i only got an occasional analysis in a doubtful poisoning case but by degrees my sphere of influence has extended until it now includes all cases in which a special knowledge of medicine or physical science can be brought to bear upon law but you plead in court i observe said i very seldom he replied more usually i appear in the character of that bait noir of judges and counsel the scientific witness but in most instances i do not appear at all i merely direct investigations arrange and analyze the results and prime the counsel with facts and suggestions for cross-examination a good deal more interesting than acting as an understudy for an absent g p said i a little enviously but you deserve to succeed for you are always a deuce of a worker to say nothing of your capabilities yes i worked hard replied thorndyke and i work hard still but i have my hours of labor and my hours of leisure unlike you poor devils of general practitioners who are liable to be dragged away from the dinner-table aroused out of your first sleep by confound it all who can that be for at this moment as a sort of commentary on his self-congratulation there came a smart rapping at the outer door must see who it is i suppose he continued though one expects people to accept the hint of a closed oak he strode across the room and flung open the door with an air of by no means gracious inquiry it's rather late for a business call said an apologetic voice outside but my client was anxious to see you without delay come in mr lawley said thorndyke rather stiffly and as he held the door open the two visitors entered they were both men one middle-aged rather foxy in appearance and of a typical legal aspect and the other of a fine handsome young fellow of a very prepossessing exterior though at the present rather pale and wild-looking and evidently in a state of profound agitation i am afraid said the latter with a glance at me and the dinner-table that our visit for which i am alone responsible is a most unseasonable one if we are really inconveniencing you dr thorndyke pray tell us my business must wait thorndyke cast a keen and curious glance at the young man and he now replied in a much more genial tone i take it that your business is of a kind that will not wait and as to inconveniencing us why my friend and i are both doctors and as you are aware no doctor expects to call any part of the twenty-four hours his own unreservedly 
I had risen on the entrance of the two strangers, and now proposed to take a walk on the embankment and return later, but the young man interrupted me. "'Pray don't go away on my account,' he said. "'The facts that I am about to lay before Dr. Thorndyke will be known to all the world by this time tomorrow, so there is no occasion for any show of secrecy.' "'In that case,' said Thorndyke, "'let us draw our chairs up to the fire and fall to business forthwith. We had just finished our dinner and were waiting for the coffee, which I hear my man bringing down at this moment. We accordingly drew up our chairs, and when Polton had set the coffee on the table and retired, the lawyer plunged into the matter without preamble. End of chapter 1 Recording by Chelsea Baker